Cases and deaths are down for two straight weeks. But jobless claims jumped again, this time by 1.1 million more Americans. It's fire season in California, and COVID-19 is complicating response efforts. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. I used to love the first day of school. Every year I'd get my new pair of kicks and a new backpack. I'd meet my new teacher and look forward to making new friends. But kids this year are looking to a very different experience. For millions of students, back to school this year means back to the laptop. Cases among children are rising as well, and the battle intensifying over reopening schools and whether it's safe not just for kids, but for the communities at large. School districts across the country have been working overtime to figure out how to go back to school safely, if to do it at all. We're already watching as schools and colleges are opening up, and then this is happening. This morning, quarantine numbers in one Georgia school district on the rise. More than 1,000 students now forced to stay home after dozens tested positive during the first few days of class. Tonight, Notre Dame going virtual for at least two weeks after 19% of students tested were positive for COVID-19. There was the outbreak at UNC Chapel Hill that forced the university to shut down its on-campus learning. Then there was the outbreak that forced an entire sorority into quarantine at Oklahoma State University. And then there was the outbreak at a Georgia high school that spread to over 100 people and forced the entire student body and staff into quarantine. I've been spending a lot of time helping advise school districts on their choices. Each faces a unique but common set of challenges. On the one hand, there are the parents who want their kids back to school, pandemic or no pandemic. On the other, there are the parents who could imagine no circumstance under which they would ever send their children back to school. And then there are the politicians. In each of the last five years, the flu resulted in more deaths of those under 18 in the United States than have been lost thus far to coronavirus by far. Given these considerations, we believe many school districts can now reopen safely. But lost in all of this is the science. What do we know about the safety of school right now? And if people go back to school or college, how do we keep them safe while they're here? President Emroy Wilson of Wayne State University faced those exact questions. He joined us to talk about his decision and the process that created it. President Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, can you talk to us about what direction uh, Wayne State is going and how you're approaching this upcoming fall semester? Sure. So the first thing that I would say is that we did not make a decision until very recently. A lot of universities came out with their decision on what they were going to do in April, May, June timeframe, particularly May. And many of these same universities have had to completely reverse what they said they were going to do uh, because things have changed. You know, our philosophy was that we really don't know in May exactly what's going to happen in late August, early September. And it's best to wait until the best, the latest possible moment before having to make that decision and make that decision based on what the circumstances are at that time. Now, obviously, you can't wait till, you know, the week before because students have got to figure out what their classes are. Faculty have to prepare the classes. Our registrar has got to get the classes up and so forth. So, so we set that date as July 15th as to when we were going to make a decision. And on that date, July 15th, things were um, not going very well in Detroit 
the the caseloads were high, the percent positivity was increasing, and um, it wasn't quite as bad as it was in the April uh, uh, time frame, but it was it was still pretty bad. And so we decided, based on the information at the time, that we were going to have the majority of our classes online, that we would continue to have some classes in person, but those are going to be mainly things like dance, uh, laboratories, uh, maybe music, uh, classes that are uh, very difficult to do online. And we went class by class, and right now, the latest tabulation that I saw was that about 13% of our courses would be face-to-face. Uh, -face. And like I said, those are going to be the courses that are more difficult to do online. And can you explain to us what were some of the, the biggest considerations and concerns that emerged from attempting to, to sort of see into the future and ask, what might happen if? What were some of the biggest uh, considerations that really carried the day uh, in those discussions that you had? Well, well the main thing was just a, uh, you know, philosophically, we made a decision early on that our North Star, what we were going to be guided by was safety first. Nothing else, you know, not finances, not what students necessarily wanted or, or, or didn't want, uh, or what faculty wanted or didn't want. Safety first was going to be our uh, guiding star, and we knew that the you know, students, for example, are going to want to be in class uh, face to face and be able to do the normal activities that that they do. Um, but you know, obviously, that's not necessarily the best uh, situation for the public's health, and so our main challenge was going to be in the housing area. Um, you know, first of all, once we found out exactly what percentage of the, of the classes were going to be online and what percentage was going to be face-to-face, -face, that, to a certain extent, would determine how many students may want to be in housing, because if it's going to be predominantly online, many students may not want to come. But we also have a lot of students who have nowhere else to go, and so regardless of what the instruction mode is, they're going to want to be in housing. In fact, we never actually closed. So we had always somewhere between four and 500 students on campus uh, throughout the summer. And so, uh, you know, some of these are international students. Some of these are students who just don't have a stable family situation to go to and, and, and we're home for them. And so we anticipate that there'll be probably about 50% uh, of our housing stock will be uh, filled. And, and we're not trying to push it. Uh, we've got a good partner, and it's, we have a public-private partnership. Uh, we've got a good partner in Corvius, and uh, even though they're going to take the financial uh, hit by not having the uh, dorms filled, I think that they've taken the same attitude as us in terms of safety being first. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really hard to control student behavior beyond a certain point. And students are going to want to get together, they're going to want to congregate, and they're going to want to do the things that they dreamed of when they go to college. And uh, that's been my, our worst nightmare is, uh, you know, how do you control the student behavior, um, particularly when you have a, a large number coming back to live in the dorms? Yeah. 
I mean, that really is, uh, you know, that's the next question that I was, I was going to ask about, which is that as an institution, a university is the facilities and it's the, um, the instruction and it's the people that make up the university. But really, in a lot of ways, what the university actually creates is a space. Um, so much of that is animated by the choices that um, the people that it primarily is designed to host, the young people, uh, make on campus. And of course, you know, sometimes young people make great decisions and sometimes they make less great decisions. And the ability to to forecast in the future what the consequences of, you know, maybe a, a party in a basement uh, in the middle of a pandemic might be um, is, is sometimes hard to do, particularly considering that a party in a basement is a fun thing to do. So, you know, how... How is it that you actually work with a student body to help to uh, inspire and encourage the best kind of decision making when, of course, you know, any congregation of a, a number of young people at a campus uh, tends to portend a certain set of, of activities? How have you thought about uh, working with students, you know, young adults to help them make the best decisions uh, even as you go forward? And then, you know, the other cost of that is that, you know, university opens up even in a small way. If there's an outbreak, of course, it's always assumed to be because of the in-class learning, which we all know is probably not the highest risk activity that's that's happening in that space. So how have you thought about that and working with the young people on Wayne State's campus to make best decisions in the context of this pandemic? Yeah, I, I think the first thing, Abdul, is to not just make decisions in a vacuum without the input of the students and then just tell the students what the decisions are. But in fact, basically all of the subcommittees have student representation on them, particularly the, the ones that specifically deal with uh, student issues. So housing, for example, in our retail spaces, our academic programming, you know, those, those kind of subcommittees all had students on it. And so those students are typically you know, student leaders and they go and they talk to other students. And, and you know, the way, the way people communicate now is certainly different from when I was a student. And you're a lot younger than I am, Abdul, but probably when you were a student also. You know, students use social media all the time, and it's, it's all this peer-to-peer -peer stuff that I think is, is really going to be very, very important. If it's just us telling students that you, know, you have to do this or you have to do that, and they haven't bought into it, then it's going to be very hard. And to get the students involved from the very beginning and have them being part of our ambassadors is very important. And in fact, we're going to have uh, certain mandates for example, uh, masks, you know, masks are going to be required on campus. Uh, well, we're not going to have our police, you know, go out there uh, enforcing that, but we will have students in each of the buildings that are open with masks available. And when they see someone that don't have a mask, they'll say, hey, you know, um, would you mind putting the mask on? So we'll have that kind of peer-to-peer uh, -peer pressure, I think, that uh, will be uh, help, very, very helpful. Yeah, that's wise. I think I think um, making sure that students are bought in because they're involved in the first place changes the ownership of that decision. Um, how are students responding? How are they thinking about the next year? What What have you heard uh, in terms of feedback? Yeah, so I think that a lot of that part of the reason why some universities came out early, like in May, with decisions to. Um, be completely open or have in-person classes is they see the surveys and they know that's what students want. 
And so you would think that with our announcement that most of our classes are going to be online, that, that students might be unhappy with that. But actually, I think what's happened over the summer is that students have become much more serious about this COVID-19 situation. Uh, it hasn't gone away. They see it hasn't gone away. And so they're, they're becoming uh, less cavalier, I think, about it. And they also see that the age group that is being most affected right now are their age group, 20 to 29 years old, is the uh, group that's uh, most affected in, in Michigan right now in terms of the number of cases. So I think they're less uh, cavalier about it. And um, uh, the messaging is, is, just, is just different now than, than it was uh, you know, a while ago. So to answer your question directly, the students so far, from what I can tell, is they think we struck the right balance. There are going to be some classes that are going to be face-to-face -face based on what we know right now. But most of the students, I think, understand that the best thing to do at this point right now is to be predominantly online. And certainly our faculty uh, feel that way. That's, uh, that's great news. Um, what do you feel like we're missing in the conversation about COVID in the education system? What do you wish people understood a little bit better about these sets of decisions that folks like you and the committee have to make? And how do you feel like that would change the conversation that we are having? Well, Abdul, you know, you're a physician also. So I, I think you know this. And that is two things. One is that this is not a trivial matter and that it, this is actually very serious and has got to be taken seriously. And, and, and secondly, um, it's not a short-term matter. It's, it's going to take a while. It's not going to be something that's going to go away in the next uh, uh, month or two. In fact, it's probably going to, if anything, um, get worse. Uh, there's going to be a second wave at some point. Flu season's coming up and our behavior has got to be um, very consistent with trying to conquer this. And the way to do that is to just get on top of it aggressively, make some short-term sacrifices for long-term gain. And, and we've just got to be um, you know, very disciplined about that. And, and I think that um, um, as this you know, normal with human nature, there's a, a bit of impatience that, that creeps in. And um, we, we've got to guard against that. Uh, thank you. That was President Emroy Wilson uh, of Wayne State University, both a physician and university president, uh, joining us today. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Catherine Auger, a pediatrician who just published a study that looked at the consequences of school closures last spring and COVID-19 spread. She'll walk us through the study and what the implications are for reopening in the fall after the break. So today we have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Catherine Auger, who is the Associate Chair for Outcomes at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and also Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati School of Medicine. Uh, really grateful to get to talk to you because, of course, she authored a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association just recently that looked at the relationship between school closings and COVID-19 
transmission and mortality. And of course, as we barrel into the fall here, nothing could be more pressing than that question of, do we open up or not? Now, Dr. Auger, can you walk us through your study? What was the question that you asked and how did you set about answering it? Sure. Thanks for having me. So we were really interested in understanding what the role of school closure was in the fall in relationship to the pandemic. So a lot of governors did a lot of different policies in this past spring to close schools, to close businesses, to issue stay-at-home orders. And we recognized how important it is that kids are in school and Schools were closed pretty early on in the States. So we wanted to know, did that make a difference? So what we did was we first collected all of the dates that different states closed their schools. And then we created mathematical models to project what might have happened if schools hadn't closed in the various states. And with these models, we accounted for other policies like the stay-at-home order and other state characteristics as well. And what we found was... First, all states closed their schools. And when we model what might have happened if they hadn't closed that schools, we saw there was a difference in about 424 cases per 100,000 and 12.6 deaths per 100,000. So what that translates to sort of in a national scale is over a 26-day period last spring, there would have been 1.37 million fewer cases and in a 16-day period, you would have seen approximately 40,000 fewer deaths. Wow. And that's if we would have, if schools would have closed earlier. Well, whether or not, that was comparing um, if they had stayed open to them actually closing. We also okay. did look at the timing of when states closed their schools, because some states closed their schools very early before there were even cases in the community. And other states, um, like Washington, had a lot more cases already um, in their state when they closed their schools. So we looked at early states versus late states, too. And we found that states that closed their schools earlier had fewer deaths and fewer cases compared to states who closed their schools later. Okay. So first I want to ask a couple questions about how you got at that question. And then I want to think a little bit more about the consequences because those are pretty dire. So you have all this data about schools staying open or closing at different times relative to how much disease there is in a particular community. And using that data, you're able to, in effect, figure out what the relationship is between school closure and disease transmission and death and then calculate that forward and, in effect, use that mathematical model to ask what would have been the consequences if, based on all of the other uh, data that you have that showed what happened when, in effect. That's correct. Of course, this is not like a causal relationship necessary, but it's, it's an association that we found with closing schools. Of course. And, you know, we had uh, Professor Kerry Keyes, who's an epidemiology professor at the Mailman School at Columbia, on in our last episode, and we were talking about epidemiologic methods. And so this is an example of an observational study. And, you know, if you wanted to do a randomized trial, you would basically just take some school districts and other school districts and be like, all right, you all close and you all stay open. But, you know, that's one of those situations that's almost impossible to do because, The minute that you think that a school closure could save a life, it becomes ethically impossible to tell certain schools to stay open. Correct. 
right? Um, and so this is a really ingenious way of sort of backing into an answer about this question. Now, what you found is that schools uh, staying open were associated with more transmission and more death, and school closures saved lives. As you think about where we are in the pandemic, because of course that was the spring and we didn't know that much about COVID-19, we know a bit more about it now. I don't want to say we know a lot more about it, but we know a good bit more about it now. What does that mean to you about what school districts should be doing uh, as we approach the fall? Well, I think there are really three things that our study, um, three ways that our study informs what might happen in the fall. First off, it really um, helps underscore this idea that the number of cases in a community is important when deciding whether or not to open the schools, right? And that's what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends. There are many scientific organizations that says, first and foremost, look what's happening in your community. If you're in the middle of an outbreak or a surge, that may not be the time to open. The second thing that you have to remember about our study is that this happened in the spring. And as you mentioned, we didn't know a lot about COVID in the spring. So we didn't know that it was important to wear face masks or, you know, keep our distance. So prevention in the classroom is essential. So going forward, schools have to be thinking of ways to keep kids and teachers safe. And if we don't open in a way that, you know, follows those guidelines such as wearing masks, keeping distance, making sure we have um, testing and tracing, increased cleaning. If we don't do all the things that we know we need to do, we're gonna be in a lot of trouble with reopening of schools. And then the third thing that our study um, suggests is that closing schools could be effective in the future if you're in a situation where there's a major surge in the community and you need to do something, what I would consider something rather drastic, right? In order to get numbers back under control, you could consider closing schools. The one thing about the spring is that all the states closed the schools and they didn't try like a stay at home order or closing businesses first. They closed the schools at the same time. So it's a little unknown is would it be possible to just close all businesses or, or shut down in some other way and leave schools open. It, I don't know whether or not that's possible or not, or if that would be enough. But if you were really um, in the middle of an outbreak, closing schools could be an effective um, mitigation strategy. Mm. So th- this is, this is helpful context. Now I want to, I want to personalize it here on you for, for a second. Uh, do you have school age kids? I do. Okay. And would you send them back to school? So what I would say is the same thing that I tell other parents is first, what's happening in your community. So um, my community, actually, the numbers, we've had a mask mandate for um, three or four weeks now, and our numbers are coming down. So I'm really optimistic about our community numbers in terms of uh, reopening schools. The second is what's happening in the schools. So we're very lucky that we have a school system that is mandating masks, that is doing their best to create distance, um, has been very thoughtful about trying to create space between kids, keep kids safe, and keep kids um, keep kids and teachers uh, minimize those risks. And the third thing is trying to understand individual situations, right? So Do you have a child who is reliant on in-person therapies such as um, special uh, 
physical therapy or occupational therapy provided by the school and you need to have that child there? Do you have a child that is reliant on meals for daily living? So there's a lot of things that our schools do, not just provide education. And then the other part of sort of that individuality of the family is that some families have high-risk family members living with them, and therefore those families need to be supported remotely so that way they are not um, bringing an unnecessary risk home to people who are maybe at more risk. So I've thought about all three of those things. Um, the reality is, is since I public schools anyway um, is starting all virtual, so there's, there's a little bit of... Uh, time there for us to see what's going to happen this fall as things reopen and we shall see. Yeah. Well, what you're reminding us, uh, Dr. Auger, is that um, there, there is no black and white in public health. There are uh, many interlocking shades of gray and that we, when we're using science to educate public policy and even individual policy, that we are constantly applying the risks and the benefits, right? The consequences of sending a child to school if that child is then going to come home and hang out with grandma who has, you know, congestive heart failure. Uh, that's a very different question than, you know, sending a kid to school in a circumstance where, you know, that kid is going to be uh, needing specific supports that you can't just get at home. Uh, which is all contextualized by how much viral spread there is in the community in which you're making this consideration. One of the things about the study that I found particularly compelling was this notion that the impact of shutting down a school has a lot to do with what's happening outside of a school. And that's part of the conversation that I feel like we miss sometimes. It's a yes school or no school rather than a do we want to open up schools in a particular community in a particular time. What do you feel like that that tells us about the role that school plays in potential viral transmission? Well, that's a great question. I mean, as I already mentioned, schools provide so many different services to different children. And, and in a lot of ways, they are very essential um, for societal well-being, not just child well-being, right? I think we are still learning about how much kids spread virus. The science is still evolving. And, you know, I think early in the pandemic, we thought, oh, kids are fine. They probably don't spread much virus. It's they're they're fine. They're fine. That's what we heard over and over again. And now we're learning. Well, it seems like from a large study in South Korea, those kids ages 10 to 19 spread the same way that adults do. We know that younger kids carry a lot of virus in their nose. They carry a lot of everything in their nose. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen outbreaks uh, in the South as schools have reopened. We've seen them in camps. So I think we have to be very aware that, you know, not opening schools is problematic from a societal perspective, but opening schools, we have to be as diligent as we can be. So one thing I would say to teachers and administrators is don't reopen before you have the safety measures in place to keep your kids and your teachers safe, because there will be some spread of virus and we still need to figure out more science needs to be done um, what are the best ways to help make that the lowest risk possible? And 
I'll ask you, you know, as a, as a pediatrician and someone who's uh, now emerged as an expert about school safety and COVID times, if you had a checklist for parents who are asking, you know, is this school district doing enough to protect my kid and my family, what would be on that checklist? Masks, masks, masks. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely facial coverings and um, a seriousness about them. I think um, a lot of children haven't worn masks or wear, worn face coverings because they haven't been in the situation. But the thing that's really lovely about kids is their master emulators. They will copy what they see. So getting them in a classroom where the normal thing to do is wear your mask and the normal thing to do is keep your distance. Like teach schools have a great opportunity here to help uh, help prevent the spread of COVID because they're going to teach kids the right way to be. And that's what schools do all the time. So from a checklist standpoint, I would say absolutely um, facial coverings. I would ask about, um, is there a way to keep distance? Like how crowded are the classrooms? Um, Because we know that one foot isn't great. Six foot's a lot better, but in between is somewhere in between, right? Two feet, three feet is better than one foot. So, So how much space can the schools create? I would ask things like, what has happened if someone in my classroom, if my child's classroom gets sick or if someone um, has COVID, what will the, how will I know? What will the procedures be? I'm trying to understand how they're thinking about contact tracing and who might be um, exposed is also important. And then I think it's challenging, but it's certainly easier with the younger um, school age kids is are they doing um, some ability of trying to keep kids together in small groups so there's not as much intermixing? And that helps, again, with contact tracing. It also helps prevent spread through the whole school. Is are we Do we have learning communities that we can rely on and develop relationships? And then finally, is the school gonna willing to be flexible and learn? Are they willing to say, you know what, we don't have it, we may not have it perfect on day one, but we are gonna do our best and see what happens. And we've been really thoughtful thus far and we will adapt as we need to. Mm. Now, um, I wanna ask you finally, uh, as you think about the implications of your work, K through 12 education is a fundamentally different beast than uh, higher education. And, you know, I know this study was focused on K through 12, but uh, you've, you've certainly spent enough times at, at colleges and universities. Um, how do you think about their safety and whether or not they should be opening up? And would love to, to hear your thoughts on, uh, on that question. Yeah. So this is a little bit more my opinion than certainly any data around it, uh, because we actually thought about, could we look at colleges closures as well? And the reality is, is in the spring, um, colleges, a lot of them just went online voluntarily. And there was a lot of within the state. um, It wasn't that the governor made them. It was often that the colleges would just say, we're going to go online this week or that week. So we really would have had to look at each college individually, which doesn't actually, um, it would be challenging to do. So I think that young adults are pretty big spreaders in this um, in this pandemic. We know that from uh, different viral studies from around the world. And 
I know that young adults and college-aged kids are good at learning online. They've been technology immersed um, since their early childhood. So my preference would be to not bring college students back on campus, would be to have them learning remotely because there's this whole other subset of young children, kindergartners, first grade, preschoolers, who need the social interaction in the classroom, who need that FaceTime. And I would like to see us prioritizing getting those little kids back and have some of that essential normal development. Um, And then after we have figured out a way to do that as safely as possible, let's bring the older kids back into the classroom. That would be my personal preference. But again, some of that is preference. Mm. Well, I really, really appreciate your insights. The last question we ask everyone is, how have you been spending these days? Uh, Well, I spent a whole lot of time looking at state websites, looking for policy dates and running mathematical models. Um, And I spent a lot of time thinking about, obviously, schools and how we can how we can um, try to go back to learning safely. But, you know, the silver lining about this pandemic for us has been it has brought us together around um, some essential public health questions that, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have worked so closely. So our research team has been absolutely incredible and it's been such a growth experience, um, both scientifically, but also perhaps almost as importantly, um, personally as a research team, it's been really fabulous. Well, we really, really appreciate you sharing your insights and being with us here and um, and educating our listeners about how to think about uh, schools and school closures in this really trepidatious time. So thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your insights and your expertise. And um, I hope that uh, you know, you're know you in the state down south, as long as you're not an Ohio State fan, we can have a conversation again. So. <laughs> I went to grad school at U of M, so it's all good. <laughs> Go blue. Yes, I, I knew there was something about you I really liked. So <laughs> no, um, really, really appreciate your time and your insights. And, uh, and your leadership, and uh, go blue. Go blue, thanks. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Wildfires are ravaging parts of California right now. As fire and hurricane season barrel toward us, not to mention flu season, COVID-19 will complicate each of these in ways we're just starting to understand. After all, where do you tell residents to evacuate to in a pandemic? And we're all worried about how we're going to vote in the middle of a pandemic this fall. But there's also the campaigning leading up to the vote. This week, 2020 socially distanced DNC unconventional convention gave us all a taste of just how much COVID-19 is forcing us to rethink the way we do politics in America. We will never get our economy back on track. We will never get our kids safely back in schools. We'll never have our lives back until we deal with this virus. People power has never been more important than it is today. We need you to sign up for Vote Save America, where you can adopt a critical swing state to help beat Donald Trump. You should adopt Michigan. It'll make me happy. Go to votesaveamerica.com to get involved. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takeya Suzawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. 